0: I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Auto Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Auto Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to How to Exit Podcast. Today I'm here with Ahmed Raza. He is the founder of Rapid Diligence and I'm looking forward to learning from you today, Guy. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So we always start off with a kind of a background story. You have an interesting background. Before you became the founder and CEO or leader of a company helping others do due diligence, you were an acquisition entrepreneur. You've done some acquisition stuff. So let's talk about kind of, I always joke and say, hey, you were born and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you fill out the gap in between? But can you give us your background or your origin story? How did you end up on a show like this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I kind of started by buying a few small online businesses. So these were primarily like e-commerce business content. And I did this back when I was in college. So I was using some personal capital, borrowed capital, and really it kind of happened due to like a family financial need. So that's why like acquisition entrepreneurship, it has a really close, close place in my heart. So I did that for a few years and I spoke with a couple of investors and they're like, hey, it looks like you're pretty good at this. You want to do this again with some of our capital? So I said, sure, let me give it a shot. Did that for a couple more deals and then started a small cap private equity fund where Again, the focus was to buy e-commerce businesses, content, SaaS, all that good stuff. Did that for about a year and a half, two years. We did pretty well with the fund, ended up exiting it. And then I kind of wanted to stay in this space without necessarily starting another fund. So I decided to start Rapid Diligence and went full-time about two, three years ago, but I started about four or five years ago. And primarily help people looking to buy small businesses, mostly online, but we've done a lot of like traditional businesses as well. So we usually come in and help with the buy side diligence process. So whether you're in the search phase and you're still kind of looking for a business or you have something under LOI, you have something under contract, we kind of come in and help you as the buyer, make sure everything looks good. There aren't any issues from a financial, operational or technical perspective.
0: So you guys do, you just said technical, financial and operational. What about legal and cultural and the other things you need to look at? The attorneys are usually going to do the the legal due diligence, but Mm -hmm. you have referrals out to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So what we've done is we've kind of honed in on what we do really well and we make sure to focus on that. And then for 90 other things that you might need, we kind of just do referrals out. And the reason I kind of wanted to go toward that model was because, again, that lets us focus on what we do well and keep getting good at that, but then also build a, a diverse network where we can still kind of refer people out to folks that we've worked with and our clients in the past have had a, a good experience working with.
0: Yeah. Did you have any success when you were buying in, buying these e-commerce like businesses and, and college and stuff? Did you buy them, grow them, exit them? Or what was the story behind that?
1: Yeah, mostly just bought them, grew them to to a degree, and then exited them. My first few acquisitions, I kind of went after more like distressed slash neglected assets because I did have a lot of cash and I wanted them at low multiples. So usually, I'd go in and say, "Hey, like this looks pretty good, but X, Y, and Z is not being properly utilized." So I went in and grew them, and then as I started going for larger businesses, especially with the private equity fund or with investor capital, started going after businesses that were more established because we were looking at larger businesses. So. Enjoyed both. I think it was a lot more gratifying buying like these super distressed assets and then turning them around in six to 12 months, but it was definitely more stressful as well because everything was going wrong all the time. I think the model of going after more established businesses was definitely a bit more sustainable long-term, but I think they definitely both have their pros and cons.
0: So when was this? Because I'll date myself a little bit here. Prior to the the inventions of Flippa and empire Mm -hmm. builders and stuff there were these forums out there warrior forum was one of them and i would flip websites years ago and what we would do is people would post they would build websites up they were good at building them they would get revenue generating but they just they weren't great at user interface or the graphic user design the graphic design side of it they'd look Mm kind of crude and to be honest they would just Get them up, generate a little bit of income with them, and they'd post them for sale. Usually, they could get them up to make in 1000 or $1,500 a month. We'd buy them at so many months multiple and turn around and clean them up, put a better, better design on them, get more traffic, do some other stuff, and turn around and sell them. We did the same thing. And I was doing pretty good at it myself until I actually got burned really good, <laughs> I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. or bad. In today's terms, back when I was doing it, it was a lot of money. But today's term, it's not. But uh, it was like, I think I paid $36,000 for a site. And within days of me buying it, within hours maybe, all the traffic dropped off. We transferred it over. i seen everything running fine. And all of a sudden, the thing started tapering off. It turns out they had a private link network of their own Mm -hmm. servers. And everything was basically internal. And they pretty much everything was faked. It just kind of died on the vine. It was so easy back then to just pretty much Photoshop PayPal statements and all this other stuff to show me income. I just quit doing it. Went to, I had a really good job anyway. I had a high paying six-figure job in the, in the tech industry. So mm-hmm. things have changed a lot since then. Most of these tools have third party. You can give somebody a login access without giving them editing access. So you, somebody can get in and look at your financials, actually log into the financials and see them. There's companies like what you guys do to, that can do third party due diligence. There's just different ways now. I'm in that space right now. Mm-hmm. actually, uh, it's one of the reasons I was interested in chatting with you. It's like, okay. I'm looking at newsletters, blogs, you know, revenue-generating websites, content sites, and that type of stuff. A little concerned with AI going on and what's company and what that's going to do to us in the long run. But uh, I'm interested in what that process looks like. I guess the question is, let's walk through the process somebody's going to buy an online asset or something you guys specialize in. At mm-hmm. what point should they start looking at, okay, I'm ready to have this looked at by a company like Rapid Diligence?
1: Great question. So most of the time we're working with clients, most of our clients we're working with, I would say about 70% or so, usually they'll reach out to us maybe like a day or two, a week or two before they're officially under LOI. Usually they have a business that they're super interested in. They're just looking to get kind of that LOI submitted. Um, and so we generally will start working with them once that LOI is executed, it's been accepted. And then the remaining 30% or so, we work with them when they're still in the search phase. So we have something that we call our start to finish plan. And really it's like targeted toward first, second, third time buyers. And it's kind of our full scale buy side advisory where we're helping you with the search process. We're helping you with pre-LOI negotiations, deal structuring, all that good stuff. But kind of focusing on that 70%, that's our bread and butter. We have folks come in and what we'll do is we establish like what that due diligence timeline is for smaller deals under One or two million, it's usually 30 days. For larger deals, it's a bit longer. And so we come in and we'll start the data collection process kind of what you mentioned where we'll get access to everything, whether that's Google Analytics, whether that's your financials, just kind of putting all of that data together. Then we'll start looking through that data, asking questions to the seller, the broker, and then kind of going through everything and making sure everything checks out. And then we'll put together a finalized report and say, hey, these are all of the things we found. These were the issues. This is kind of any discrepancies and things like that. So that's kind of what our general process looks like once you've engaged us. So
0: what led you to want to create something like this? I told you I had an experience where it just didn't work out for me, right? Mm -hmm. What led you to, I guess I could always made that turn. I could have like really solved this problem back then and Mm -hmm. then actually solved it for other people. That's usually a catalyst for something that would cause me to create a business. Unfortunately Mm -hmm. at the time for me or or fortunately, I had a fairly decent six-figure job. So this was Mm -hmm. kind of a side hustle. So I just went back to doing my full-time job at 50, 60 Mm -hmm. hours a week. If you're in tech, you don't work 40 right 50 60 right. 70 hours a week and set this aside for a while actually I switched over and got into day trading which <laughs> was very profitable at the beginning back back in the day when you I don't think you still do it but you could do arbitrage you could actually play this game where you're buying large blocks of stock and then selling mm-hmm. it within seconds you're basically playing an arbitrage game matching buyers and sellers because there was a price gap so we were playing that game inside of there but uh, there's other big players in there if they figure out if you're in the ballpark they can actually set you up and hurt you If you're a small player inside of that realm back then, the bigger guys would see you playing in their ballpark and basically smack you every once in a while. And that can get very expensive and very painful. So let's go back to if somebody's got their LI or they're thinking about doing an LI, they reach out to you guys. What are the type of stuff that you guys look at? What are you looking to find? And then maybe we'll get into some interesting stories of things you did find that were like surprising
1: absolutely so a lot of it it, we basically break it down depending on the type of business so with online businesses that's why i say we kind of specialize in that is because it's a lot easier to just get really good with like e-commerce content SaaS because they follow a lot of the same models so -hmm. we're looking at a lot of different things we're doing the numbers component which is we have a small team of cpas on our team that go through all of the financials whether you get a quality of earnings or one of our less financially kind of in-depth reports we'll have cpas look at it regardless. And these aren't just generic CPAs we refer out to, they're actually in-house. And so they're used to looking at these small businesses, these kind of different business models. So we do that first. We look at the website traffic, if it's an online business, and then we start digging into like the kind of the things such as risk, opportunity, talking to the seller, talking to the broker, and the more human component of it, where it's not just about running the numbers, but actually about understanding the risk of this particular business. And so For a lot of those online businesses, that's the method we take for more traditional businesses. Like we've looked at like manufacturing companies, HVAC businesses, all of that good stuff. And so a lot of that comes down to just the financials and then the operational risk as well. So a lot of times, if you come to us with a traditional business, our team will tell you is that, Hey, this is something we've done and we can help from an operational risk component or hey this is only something we can help by reviewing the numbers but you want to get someone else to do some of the operational risk because we have no idea what goes into this and that's kind of how i've tried to approach it over the last couple of years is hey where we can help will always help but if that's something we can't help with then we're not going to pretend like we're hvac specialists etc and be like hey we can help you with all of the different due diligence components because There's a lot of risk that goes into buying a business. And so like mitigating that risk, obviously, is super important. So where we can help and we can provide value, we always will. But where we can't, we'll be candid about it and tell you that, hey, at least this piece you have to go to someone else for. So you mentioned
0: quality of energy report and having CPAs versus on-staff stuff. A lot of these smaller businesses, especially, I would say, anything under $5 million Mm -hmm. in valuation, especially online. In my findings, and I've looked at a few, is they really just don't have strong financials. Nobody's ever taught these guys how to do income statements, but balance statements. When I asked somebody for their financials recently, what I got is, here's a copy of my business's bank account. He did have an LLC set up, which Mm -hmm. I've seen him without it. He did have an LLC set up. He did have a business account. He was in business for three years. He didn't have an accountant on staff. He basically had a tax lady. All the money went into the business account. He paid himself a salary and then she did his taxes, but there was no balance statements, income statements. Do you get a lot of that with these small businesses where they're just, unless they've been through a broker and a broker prepared the reports for you, they don't actually have some of the stuff you would standardly look for?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So this happens all the time. And the funniest, the statement I always get from our clients like buyers is, hey, it's a pretty straightforward business. The financials are straightforward. And I always chuckle a little bit every time because I'm like, yeah, ideally it is straightforward, but usually it's not because most of these guys are not looking, they they don't start their business with the hope of selling it one day, right? They just happen to stumble upon selling their business. And so it's not like they're in retrospect, they went through and make sure everything was separated properly, whether that's financials, operations, even things like emails. Like We've seen folks with, like, especially like you mentioned, that sub $5 million category where we've had folks come in and say, hey, I can't share the business email, because it's also my personal email, stuff like that, right? And so we've seen this a lot. And that's kind of, I think, where it's important to work with someone who does this, because the goal is then to still be able to mitigate the financial risk and be able to look through everything without scaring off the seller, right? Because if we come in and say, hey, like, everything's crap, your financials are crap, this sucks, and nothing is going to like, that's not the point, right? Because it very well might still be a really good business. It just happens to have Financials that aren't terribly easy to navigate, but we see it all the time, and really it just comes down to separating it and mitigating the risk, and then usually at least making sure we can tie back 95 percent of the earnings, the costs, everything back to the PNL, and that way we can say with some a high degree of certainty that okay we feel good about this, we were able to track things back and kind of don't see any major issues with the financials or the operations.
0: A couple of years ago, when it was first getting into the space, I just basically said if they don't have great balance sheets, pr- profit loss statement. If they don't know their own cash flow, I'm just not interested. And I brought a guy on the show. I won't say who it is, but I brought a guy on the show and he said, that's absolutely ridiculous. You're looking for companies under $5 million. You, you just eliminated 80% of your buyer pool. And if you want to do off-source or off-market deals, you know, where, where brokers and advisors aren't already involved, you just eliminated 95% of your deal flow, your potential deal flow. You said, looking at people's crappy books, as you put it, and determining they have a great business with bad books. So that was an eye-opener, and I know of a couple of guys right now, and I'm pretty good at looking at things. When the time comes, I know that I don't have to actually have a perfect set. I could have guys like you or some of the other guys I've met take a look at it and figure out what's really there as opposed to what appears, what appears to be there. I think it's even more important a lot of times when you do have a broker or something involved just because now you have a third party trying to make it look great, and there's some um, – what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think there's anything dishonest going on most of the time, but there's some fluff that happens. <laughs> Trying to put their best foot forward and it wasn't their leg they're standing on, kind of thing.
1: And, and I will say kind of, because you mentioned brokers as well, most of the businesses we look at, if they're even if they're sub five million, if there's a broker involved, they are likely to have like prettier financials, cleaner financials. Right. But then we have to start looking at other things where... I think the best thing that comes into mind is like ad backs. We have to start looking at whether those ad backs are legitimate because a lot of times when we see businesses that go through brokers, they'll have nicer, cleaner financials where we can tie things back, but we'll see ad backs that aren't necessarily justified. So then we start kind of turning our lens more towards, hey, what have you added back to the P&L that's not necessarily justified to add value to the business, to add to the EBITDA. And so it, it becomes like, hey, depending on where they're coming from and what source they're coming from, we have to look at different things accordingly. What's some of the craziest stuff you found? A lot of times, especially because we do work with a lot of deals that go through brokers, it's not necessarily like so much so that things are being misrepresented as much as things are just not agreed upon. I think ad backs are a big thing that come to mind. I think some of the crazier things, we actually just did a deal, it was for like a bunch of medical spas. And so They were, it was a very small deal, but they were representing about 400K EBITDA. After our CPS went through it, they actually, everyone agreed that it was a 200K EBITDA. So we effectively just cut that valuation and everything in half. So we've seen that software businesses where this was more technical than financial, but software businesses where the developer is the founder and so they're doing everything on their desktop. There's nothing that can be kind of migrated and there's nothing, if you're familiar with tech, there's nothing with GitHub or code repositories, anything like that. Those are always a little bit tough to navigate because then we have to figure out like, okay, how can we actually make this sustainable for a new owner? We've seen content businesses where what you mentioned. So we've actually seen a few of those where they have private blog networks as they call them. And so These are effectively like, hey, you own like five, six different websites in this space. And then you're effectively just sending traffic to each of those. And so those are actually a little bit tough to like figure out if someone's doing it. The more sophisticated you get with your private blog network, the harder it is to track. But we have found a few where they weren't disclosed. And after looking through like, Google Analytics, SEMrush, Ahrefs, like looking through all these platforms, we are like, hey, there's something weird going on. Everything kind of like circles around when it comes to traffic. It was a a good find for us in the sense that it saved the buyer a lot of money because nine out of 10 times, unless it's disclosed, it goes in the direction that you had mentioned where you buy the business. A month later, they shut down the private blog network and then none of that traffic is there anymore. So a lot of interesting little war stories that happen from both financial, technical and website traffic. It's
0: interesting. So on the financial side, you think that mm-hmm. a lot of those ad backs were done by the broker. A lot of times I don't think the brokers, they're not m- meaningfully misrepresented. And there's a definitely conflict of interest, right? They're motivated to get the highest price possible. And a lot of times there's no real clear, at least not, not that I found, there's no real clear industry norm that says these are normal ad backs. These are going to be shunned. So everybody thinks that they have their own set of rules, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Guides that they say Mm -hmm. what could be added back or not. So, then it's just, it's up open to negotiation. Well, you added back your personal expenses in this thing. And well, this is right here is not a personal expense. It's actually something that the business absolutely has to have to survive.
1: Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you said is why it gets trickier with ad backs is that because it's so subjective and even broker by broker people, like companies do it differently. An interesting example that comes to mind is with a few content sites I've seen that people actually add back. Some brokers will add back the cost of the content itself. Now that's tricky because it's like the argument there is like, well, that content's already out there and it will continue to provide results in perpetuity without additional investment. But at the same time, it's also kind of an ongoing cost that you need to, you have to keep updating your content. You have to keep adding content. So it really becomes kind of like this weird little spot where it really ultimately becomes like what you negotiate. It's like, okay, well, we'll add back like maybe 30% of the content, but there's no way we're doing 100%. And so you're right where there's no like guidelines or something you have to strictly adhere to that says you can add these things back and you can't add these things back. Some are more straightforward. Like if you have like personal health insurance costs, it's a one owner company or one employee company. That's pretty straightforward or, or some certain other expenses. But there are a lot of things that become very subjective. And so So we usually have to like tread waters carefully on that, but we also don't want the buyer to get a terrible deal because like 90% of things were added back that another broker wouldn't. So now effectively you buy a $1 million business and it's worth like $400,000 the moment you try to list it back on the market. So I think it's just a matter of like navigating that carefully.
0: So I've got one that I'm kind of unclear on and like I've still considered myself a novelist in this space. I've interviewed more people about it and answered more questions about it than I've actually done deals. But I have a case I've already said no to the deal. So, so <clears throat> I can say who the company is. Two founders decided they're going to sell their, it's an online business. So they decided they're going to sell their business. It was of interest to me. So I, I did the NDA. I actually looked at it really closely, but there was no salaries in any of their stuff. Like they weren't paying each other. They weren't paying one of their key employees. They weren't paying him inside of the books either. And come to find out in deeper discussions. Two years ago when they decided to sell it, they paid everybody a huge bonus, a one-time payment. And everybody was living on that while I tried to make the numbers look as big as they could to sell it. And I was like, we still have to put salaries in there. It's still going to hit your uh, what your business profitability and stuff is. And he's like, yeah, but that's not an ad back. We had this conversation. They didn't have a broker and I didn't know how to handle the conversation. Like, I'm not going to do all the work of three people. So I had to like right. look at it and like, what what would it cost me to run this? So do you see cases where like just the guys just aren't paying themselves inside of these things and then they want to sell it for a big exit and they don't understand that employees have to step in there and run that thing
1: yeah it just definitely happens especially with the whole like two employees one buyer scenario especially i've seen it a lot with like business partners seen it with like husband and wife kind of they run the business together but they take dividends but they don't necessarily get paid in which case what we'll end up doing is like negotiating a nominal salary that needs to be included before we look at even because otherwise it's just not fair you're going to buy a business or you're going to have to hire someone for that secondary person's role even if as an owner you're coming and saying i'm like i'm okay with working 40 50 hours a week as the business owner you still won't need that secondary person and the way i always tell buyers is like hey if they're putting in 100 hours a week combined that's almost 150 for you at least in the first three months because you're still learning you're not going to do things as, as efficiently as they're doing it. So it's happened on quite a few occasions and really what it comes down to is just again negotiating and going back to the drawing board and saying, hey like we need to at least add like a $60 dollars salary to cover up for at least the second person if we're not going to do both. So yeah it's happened for sure.
0: So one of the things I do when I'm going through a company is I look at who's on salary basically, what is the salary base. but I also look at what are the normal roles inside of a business. For instance, like if you've got a content business, who are the writers? do they get paid? Who's contributing the content? How are they compensated? Who's doing any organization, project planning, reaching out to content producers and all that. But I look at the roles and stuff and figure out who's doing that. Because sometimes you just don't realize. When I look at brick and mortar companies, one of my favorite things to do is like, okay, what does your wife do? I always mm-hmm. ask a business owner, what does your wife do? Well, she does X, Y, and Z. Well, what does she do for this business? And You'll find out a lot of times that they just never disclose. Well, she does our accounting. She, she comes in on every Friday and does payroll for me but it's not it's not disclosed anywhere. They're not on the org chart. And the smaller the business, the more likely you have people that step in and do things that are not on the org chart. And they don't yep. realize, okay, well, I have to pay somebody to do that. Because your wife's not going to continue to come in on every Friday and do my books. The same thing is like one of the guys I was looking at his stuff, his SEO was awesome. Lots of links and stuff. Like, cool, who does your SEO? I have a buddy of mine that I write an article once a month for, for his thing, and he does all my SEO because he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm not a writer in that realm. I can't write mm-hmm. for his content. This guy had like a PhD in, in one subject and that content site in the other. So he would write for his buddy's content, which was in his l- level of education or in his realm of education. Like I can't write on that. Like it was something so crazy, like paranormal psychology or something where it was weird off tough topic. Like how do you have a degree in that or in that realm? So there's these relationships and activities going, do you look for that during due diligence you look for? Okay. What are the normal roles inside of running this organization? Who's doing them? Is there a salary allocated for that individual inside of the books? Do you guys look for that? Or
1: Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, we always ask for an org chart. And this is kind of, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, where the reason we focus on online businesses and kind of on these specific categories of e-commerce SaaS content is because we know what it takes to run an e-commerce business, so a content business. so. If for example, you show me a PNL for a content business or a SaaS software business, and I see nobody there that's responsible for writing code or, or kind of pushing up code, et cetera. That's already a red flag, right? Where either it's not being accounted for, it's done by the owner, or it's not actually put on the PL properly. So we definitely look at that. And I think that's what makes this easier to do when we focus on just these certain types of businesses, is that we know exactly what the key responsibilities are. Whereas if you gave me, I don't know, like a bubble tea shop, like a brick and mortar bubble tea shop, I don't know what goes behind running a bubble tea store. So you might tell me, hey, these are all the responsibilities and these are all the people behind it. It'd be very hard for me to discern, like, okay, what's missing. Whereas with the businesses we look at it, it's very easy to know hey if you have an e-commerce business and you start inventory and i don't see anyone on payroll or a 3pl that's actually sending out your products you're obviously not disclosing something so We always look at org charts and then we start digging and then we dig. And then, as you said, right, you dig a little bit deeper and deeper each time and you ask these questions and there's always going to be something that comes up, especially for like these sub three, four million dollar businesses where it's a friend or a buddy, a wife or a husband. And it always fascinates me because people don't view this as great of a risk as it really is, because for a lot of people, it's like, hey, does the Stripe payments align exactly with the P&L? And and do not get me wrong, that's important. But if you have these people on your team that are that serve like critical functions and they're not being migrated along with the business you're losing these critical i mean that's what the business is right and so it's something we've dug into in the past and it's something we always dig into and there's always something that come that comes up and then we need to disclose it and then figure out how to negotiate that back into the price right so super important and if for everyone listening i always recommend doing that always recommend kind of getting an org chart and then seeing what's being done, what's missing, and then digging deeper and deeper each time and finding out what those responsibilities are. And I love your question about like, oh, what does your wife do? And then what, what does she do for this business? That's awesome. That's fantastic. So I always recommend doing that. I'm always looking
0: for what's the unsaid, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of look around what's going on, especially if you get to go visit the site since COVID and not i've been pretty much doing everything via zoom but just because i just never got really good at doing the zoom side of things it never fell out of that mode and online really just there's nothing to go visit for a lot of these guys the servers are in some data center somewhere they're working from their house they always have all the employees are remote working from their houses there are just occasionally where i've looked at one where they had a couple offices but most of the time these guys they've embraced this remote work scenario but to do it online there's still a way to look around and go okay if i was running this what would i need SEO is a big one. Who's doing your your search engine optimization? Like if content, who's doing the content for these podcasts and stuff? Who's doing your editing? I have a team who they edit and do my social media for me. Virtual assistants type of guys and girls, but mostly women. I don't even know why I said guys. I don't have a single guy working for me right now. <laughs> anyway, that said, having that insight, like you guys know the online space, right? That's a huge win for anybody using your service if they're looking for that. If they brought you a manufacturing company and they produce widgets, you you may not know that if that machine equipment out there is more than 20 years old, somebody's maintaining that stuff on a daily or weekly basis. Somebody's changing parts on the actual machines, making the widgets. A friend of mine was looking at buying a machine shop, like a mechanical. They built widgets. And turns out the owner was the lead sales guy, the payroll guy. He did his own payroll, basically. He, He knew accounting well enough to keep himself out of trouble, barely. And then he was a maintenance guy. Like he actually went out into the shop when stuff broke. He's also the lead trader. He had 52 employees, 53 employees. When anybody came into work, like he would show them how to use the machine, how to make that part, teach them how, what specs needed to go in there. But if one of the big machine, like big lathes or one of the big metal machines they had, CNC cutters and all the kind of stuff they had, if something broke, he took the first shot at fixing it before they called it out off staff. I was mm-hmm. like. You've got four roles here, guy. And the least expensive of them was probably at least a $50,000 a year job. So now we've got a $50,000 a year job for that, an $80,000 a year job for X, and then a part-time accountant. You looked at it, they needed 200K a year to Mm -hmm. replace all the jobs, all the hats he's wearing, not including his CEO role. And the business just wouldn't support it. He drove it so lean and trying to, it was a very competitive market space too. So He was trying to stay competitive with his market, his competitors who were competing on price and got himself in a situation where it's going to be hard to sell because unless somebody else wants to pull 70, 80 hour weeks and has that broad range of skill sets, they're not going to be able to buy that. So going back to what you guys do, how do you identify? I know you do both brick and mortar and online. There's new stuff all the time, right? What happens when you get something new on the plate? What's the process to go? okay, this is new, this is different. Yeah, it's online, but maybe it's using technology you haven't seen yet. Maybe it's the new, right now the Hot Topic's AI, right? They've got AI, they've got different language models. One of the biggest things I'm concerned about, this is a good one for you too. Maybe they have a combination of both open source and proprietary code. There's some tricks with like, if you built a public company, or not a public company, but a company you're revenue generating and you've pieced and milled in open source code to it, you can get yourself into trouble, right? There's questions about that. Do you guys do code reviews and that type of stuff?
1: Yeah, I kind of address both of those. So the second question with code reviews, we do code reviews. We do what we basically look at when we're doing code reviews is we call it like a code base and tech stack review. So I, I usually will head these. I have a background in computer science. I have a computer science degree. at software engineering for a few years. So I usually understand this pretty well. But The goal when we do code reviews is really to understand the sustainability, and you'll hear me use that word a lot, but it becomes increasingly important, especially when we look at sub $5 million businesses, because the biggest issue, like you mentioned with with the businesses you were looking at, where the guy was doing like four jobs. Sustainability becomes a big question there. So what we look at is we'll look at the actual code base, but then we'll look at the full technology stack. Is the way it's set up going to transfer well to a new to a new owner, right? Is it really going to continue to be a, a software product that continues to generate new versions, new releases, or is it going to be something that kind of dies with the owner? Once that old owner leaves, is it going to just not be there? So what we look at a lot of that when we think about code reviews And then the other question you mentioned about like how things continue to change, especially like we think about like AI or as a whole, like software that we haven't looked at. I love that. And I think that's such an important question because the thing we do is we actually have a team, not an in-house team, but a team of consultants we work with that actually run these businesses on a day-to-day. So we have a team we work with, like they have a portfolio of like 45, 50 content sites. We have one with FBA guys. We have one with SaaS guys. And so what we do when we're doing diligence is for that very niche specific work, we actually run it by them as well. And this is all included in the fixed cost that our clients pay. We don't charge them anything on top, but we'll run it by them and say, hey, like we have this FBA business we're looking at. Obviously you guys run like 18 different FBA businesses. Can you do a quick analysis? Let's look at this, see if there's any issues that you guys have found that we weren't able to spot for some reason. And so what that does is that ensures that we're staying on top of things without having to like constantly worry about like, okay, what with these new updates coming out with the latest Google update, with the latest chat GPT update, how does this impact? And, and we're able to work with guys that are doing this on a day-to-day basis. So I think that culmination of like our expertise plus using the expertise of people that are doing this day in and day out, it kind of creates a pretty cool formula where we're able to make sure that we capture a lot of that risk and understand a lot of that risk.
0: I'm going to date myself here a little bit. I'm a tech nerd from a previous generation. What brings mind to me on this whole sustainability is like different technologies phase out over time, right? Mm -hmm. Back when I got out of the military, I worked for Lockheed Martin. One of our big things was we redid the U-2 mission planning system. So the U-2 spy plane basically has a mission planning system that tells the cameras and sensors on there where to take pictures and that type of stuff based off of geolocation and stuff. It was on an old VAX computer system, which was, you couldn't buy anymore because nobody was supporting these old, big, old clunky VAX machines. The data center, like the storage units for these things were aisles upon aisles of hard drives in these data centers. And all that will fit on, I probably have more space than 10 of those aisles on my thumb drive over here. I have a one terabyte or two terabyte thumb drive in, in this unit to back mm-hmm. up things on. Back then, if the drives would go bad, then one of those drives in those shelves, would go bad a little red light would come on. The first step to see if you could fix it is you'd pull the drive out, whack it with a rubber mallet and shove it back in to see if the disc inside of it hung up some. You literally would pull these out, tap it a couple of times with the rubber mallet, stuff it in there and see if it would spin back up and then mm-hmm. we'd self-repair if it could. But we moved it to a more modern system based off of back then which was Sun, Sun Solaris type of things. And that's gone now as far as I know. We almost moved it to Silicon Graphics, which I know is gone, right? So... Is some of that technology review and some of the due diligence you do inside of that, like, look, you guys got this on a platform that's going to have to be shifted in the next six months or 12 months, or do you guys look at that? Like what platforms they're on, what languages are written in? I'm going to date myself. If you've written in something like C or Fortran or something, and I think the latest and greatest is Ruby on Rails, or I don't even mm-hmm. know these days. You look at the technology it was built in and go, that's going to be hard to sustain, or it's going to be hard to find programmers for that. What do you do inside of the, on that
1: Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of times with that, if we can't Like basically, if we can't figure out a way to migrate that over or if we don't have the expertise on it, then it's likely too old. I know like people still use PHP pretty regularly, right? But now it's like it's all like Ruby on Rails, React, all that good stuff. But I think the thing I always tell clients is that if it's too old for us to understand, it's probably too old. I think if like you really want to date it, like if someone comes in with something in like Pascal or they wrote something in like x86 assembly or something like we're probably gonna tell you, hey, like we either don't have the expertise within our group to figure this out and you probably will need to migrate it at some point but usually I think nine out of ten times it's simply like hey this is something that can be utilized and it will continue to have support for the next like five ten years but it's definitely kind of at this point where it's being phased out so we'll usually do that most of the stuff we see though is pretty pretty modern so to speak it's a lot of like React and Ruby on Rails and just JavaScript, stuff like that. So usually we don't have to have that conversation, but in the cases that we've had to have it, it's pretty much like, hey, this will be good for the next like decade, but like you're losing support and it's usually pieces of the software. Like you're using this piece that has, it's stopped being supported in the last like five years. So you probably want to get away from it, especially based on the type of software you're building. So if your software depends pretty strongly on like security and stuff like that, then you don't want to be on anything outdated. If it's something more just like like a to-do list or something like that, then it's not as big of a deal. So it also comes down to the type of business and the type of software.
0: Yeah, you just pulled one of those. I'm 51 now. Occasionally I'll be driving the road and listening to the oldies station and a song that came out in my generation comes on. I'm like, hey, that's not an oldies. What are you doing? So yeah, maybe it is. You just did that. When I was flipping websites, PHP was common. We were moving things into PHP and Java JavaScript. That was the two that we played around. And most of the sites I flipped are php type of base my sql database is on php front ends right now i'm looking at things and like ruby on rails and this other stuff and i don't do the coding anymore got enough money and not enough time to want to relearn Mm -hmm. another language so i always outsource the stuff i probably could read i read so much code in different i was a test engineer that's what i did for locking so i was a staff test engineer i got paid to break into break the computer systems Mm -hmm. and uh, do code reviews so i would sit in front of the in rooms with 10 or 15 other people and read thousands of line of code and look for flaws in logic and stuff in all kinds of languages. But once you learn the logic of what we're looking for and stuff like that, the language is just a language of the code. We had tools and stuff that would look for, we call it a coding issues where they forgot a semicolon or something like that, or the code reviews, we'd find stuff. But most of the time we were looking for flaws in the actual logic of what they were doing. So. We've talked about this a little bit. We talked about like the different types of products and stuff like that. What is the process? Do you guys give these guys a go, no go? Like here's our recommendations. How long along the process do you guys stick with these guys? Do you stick with them through the closing? And is there anything you guys do post-closing or?
1: Yeah, so for a lot of like these these buyers that come in, if they're on that start to finish plan that I mentioned, that 30% plan will be with them like throughout that, throughout the entire process. Once they've closed, et cetera, even post-closing a little bit, But for most folks that are coming in and they're engaging us post LOI, we try not to make like these major go, no go recommendations only because everyone has a very different risk appetite. So instead, we try to do it more objectively, like, hey, here are the major issues that we found and this is the risk associated with them. And this is what you can do to fix these issues. If it's acceptable to you, you can always still buy this business. But this is the challenges you'll run into. And I found that that does that creates a lot more of a sustainable model long-term for us as well, where we don't come in and say, hey, like buy this business or don't buy it. Obviously we're a lot more, like if it's a really, if there's a lot of things really wrong, we'll say like, hey, there's just a lot of issues and probably wouldn't proceed with this unless you just feel really strongly about it. But I would say nine out of 10 times it's usually like, hey, these are the issues that we found. This is what you can do to, kind of mitigate these risks long-term and for most buyers that's a lot more helpful than us just giving them more of like a vague hey you should buy this or shouldn't buy this because again we have folks come in that are okay with distressed assets they're okay with a more riskier purchase especially if you're like adding your ninth or tenth company to a holding call you're a lot more aware of what you're buying, you're a lot more okay with these risks. Whereas if you're buying your very first business with some personal capital, you might not be as okay with that. It. So it's just providing that distinction and kind of helping them understand what their risk is.
0: I guess the next question I'm going to have here is you help with this, the sell side, right? I mean, the, the buy side the buyers. Do you ever have sellers reach out to you and go, kind of like a quality of earnings report? Like, hey, here's what I'm selling. Here's everything I got. What are buyers going to expect and what do I need to clean up? Do you have brokers bringing stuff to you like that? Or do you have buyers themselves reaching out to you guys and saying, I really want to put my best foot forward. What do I need to fix over the next two months, six months, year to make this
1: appealable? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we have done like sell-side quality of earnings. It's by no means often. It's pretty sparse. It's the same process. there. It's going through things, understanding like the quality of earnings, looking at ad backs, all that good stuff. We've had this happen on a few occasions. And so we're usually able to help as long as there's no like sort of like conflict of interest or anything. Like, hey, if we think, our buyers might be interested in this we usually say no because we don't down the road we don't want it to be like hey you represented the seller and now you that can't happen that's too messy it's possible it's doable and we have done it in the past especially for more traditional businesses it, it can be done and we've done it but most of our focus ends up it just naturally has ended up being more on the buy side because that's just where we've usually come in and so staying very true to the side you're on it helps a lot long term especially as you build a brand because we always say like hey we're buy side representatives first and foremost and so especially when we have folks come in and they're using a broker and stuff we always say like look we've worked with some fantastic brokers that I think the world of but at the end of the day a broker is a seller's representative and any reputable broker will tell you that that hey ultimately we are a seller's representative and we're not taking responsibility for any of the information that's been disclosed as a buyer it's your duty to go and make sure that these claims are valid and so I think from a branding perspective, it's been easier just to stay purely on the buy side. And then whenever we get requests, we just kind of review them on a per request basis and see if that's something we can help with. Okay.
0: What about, uh, how do you guys deal with, like, you've got a buyer comes to you, they've got a deal they've got, you go all the way through it. And at the end of it, there's nothing really wrong with, for some reason or another, the buyer backs out. Are you Mm -hmm. guys under any type of non-compete that keeps you from selling it to any other sellers? Or can you go, hey, if you really don't want this, I probably have somebody that does. What happens to these failed deals?
1: That's an interesting scenario. So we've definitely had it happen before. Usually they're already represented by a broker. It's more like, hey, it's fine. It didn't work. What we have done in the past is like, oh, a deal didn't go through. And we have folks on that start to finish plan I mentioned that are in the search phase. And what we'll say is like, hey, is it cool if I circulate this with our other buyers? There's a few that might be interested in this deal. And usually it's like, yeah, absolutely. No no problem with that. But we won't come in and serve as an actual broker or representative for the deal. We'll just circulate that information. And again, this is the goal with this is just to be clear on what side we're on. Buy side representative, right. we don't want to come in and serve as a broker, especially for a deal we've done buy side diligence on. I can see
0: the conflict of interest inside of that. So. We're hitting the top of the hour I want to make sure everybody kind of has some basic information about really in depth who you guys are and what you do and stuff so and how to reach out to you so mm-hmm. let's start with the what is your ideal client which the ones you work with the best the ones you love the most if people are listening here today and they own a business that's X y and Z and they're thinking about or thinking about buying businesses in this realm what would that be what would be your area of expertise you want you want more customers in I guess is the word I want to phrase it
1: Yeah, I would say primarily looking at folks that are looking to either buy an online business or have already submitted an LOI on an online business. And when I say that, I mean e-commerce content, Amazon FBA, Amazon KDP, anything with a truly online presence at the sub $10, $15 million range. So we've done deals above that as well, but that's kind of our sweet spot. And so what you're really looking for is this is your first, second, or third acquisition, and you're looking for buy-side help and looking for someone that can come in and do the full scope diligence service. So that's usually where we provide the most value and kind of where we have the process down quite well so we can come in and do that work. So that that's usually what our ideal client looks like.
0: Now, are there different packages for different levels? Is this done on a what's the pricing model like? Do you have different packages? Is it priced by number of hours it takes or how does it work?
1: Everything is priced on a fixed cost basis. Because again, if you're looking to buy a small business, you don't want to end up getting a bill at the end of diligence. Like, hey, this is like $20,000 more than you expected. So we do everything on a fixed cost basis. We don't have a ton of packages just in in the attempt to keep it as simplified as possible. Mm-hmm. We have a couple when we call a live verification report, which is kind of due diligence into an online business and we do everything. We have quality of earnings, a few different things like code base review that we talked about. And usually what happens is that there's a base pricing. And then as businesses get larger, the pricing goes up by by a small margin each time. And the cool thing is one thing we do a bit differently is that if you go on our website, rapiddiligence.com and you click generate a quote, you'll just get taken to a quote calculator. And so you can put that any value in and you can see all of our prices. So we're big on pricing transparency. You don't have to put in your email. It's not going to be like an email marketing tactic. You just put hey, this is the business I'm looking to buy. This is the service I'm interested in. Just give me the pricing for that. It, it kind of does that and it just helps keep things nice and clean. So that's kind of how we work on a, on a pricing basis.
0: Do podcasts fall in online content?
1: (laughs) Yeah, they do. I would say they do.
0: (laughs) There's a broker, actually, at Website Closers. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed one of their brokers before. Just came to my attention this morning. There's a business podcast on there that I might be interested in. Now, I feel that it's way overpriced, but Mm -hmm. I'm very seriously considering reaching out to them.
1: How does that work, though? Like, the host, is the idea that you take over as the host? That's the biggest
0: concern. I have a suspicion of who it is because it's like they don't announce it because it's just a... uh, We call it a sim or whatever. It's basically just a outline of what the business is. But by the Mm -hmm. details, it limits it down to maybe one or two or three different podcasts it even could be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think I know which one it is. That said, the host is pretty dominant. It's just like what I'm doing right here. It's an interview-based podcast. It's actually Mm -hmm. older than mine. It's broader. It's on entrepreneurship and Mm -hmm. it's much broader, but it's also like they're much shorter shows too. Instead of being an hour-long shows, I think they're all 20, 30-minute shows. And they do seven of them a week. And for a long time, I was doing two a week. Right now I'm doing one, but that's a lot of work. The thing is, it says that the host is willing to stay on with the new host long enough to make sure it's successful. There's still going to be some loss there, right? I used to help out with a, kind of be a part owner or whatever, help out with a local martial arts studio. Blew my knees out and gained all this weight. But I taught martial arts for 18 years of my life or participated in them and taught as a student instructor type of thing. That said, you could move a martial arts studio a mile and lose 30% of your students. And that's one of the loyalist businesses there are. Those students, they called their teacher a sensei or a master, yeah. but you moved it around the block and all of a sudden people, that was the one thing they needed that was like, they just stopped showing up to class. Like, okay, take everybody over to the new school. Let's show them all the new math. Let's set the mm-hmm. sc- new school up. Spend a little extra money. Set the new school up completely. So there's Mm -hmm. no downtime. There's not a day or two without classes that people just know to go over. We had students waiting at one door to take them to the next, and there's still a big loss. I think the same thing with this podcast. I honestly think there's got millions of subscribers right now. He has multi-million dollars worth of sponsorships. I think on both the subscribers, there are people who are just, they enjoy listening to him, even though it's an interview podcast right now. So a lot of it has to do with the catalyst of the guest or the clout of the guest but a lot of it also has to do with people are there because they enjoy that person's way style of interviewing so i think there's gonna be loss there but on this on the other side of i think there are probably sponsors there that just love working with the guy been working with the guy for a long time and Mm -hmm. it's a four-person team so they're working they're definitely working with the host directly he's not Mm going to have his vas do it most likely so i think you'll lose some of your bigger sponsors too and have to rebuild those relationships and go out and find new sponsors potentially So that's the reason I think they're wanting like seven or eight X. And I was like, yeah, maybe a two X or three X because you're going to lose a lot of that.
1: Yeah. And that's super interesting because I, we even see this challenge sometimes with like content businesses just to kind of go to that. And even like Mm -hmm. email marketing where you sell like an email list where you kind of, you've seen some like content businesses where it's like, it's a company that's providing recipes or websites, providing recipes from this persona, Kathy. Kathy's a wife and a mom and stuff. And so even though it's not really Kathy running that business, but the owner themselves has kind of developed this persona as their own. And so one of the challenges is like, hey, like when you buy this business, you kind of have to continue to be Kathy. Cause if you're no longer Kathy, then no one wants to read it. Right. And so I could only imagine that gets heightened with a podcast because it's like there's not just a persona, there's an actual person. Yeah, let me know if that if you end up going through that. it. That sounds super interesting. Yeah,
0: this is a much younger guy. I don't try to be pretty, so he's actually probably a lot more attractive of a younger guy. I think that there's both interview styles, so there's some similarity. But I, I would be real concerned. I would lose a big chunk of them. And then the third part of that is is like. How do you mitigate that for the future? Like, if I bought mm-hmm. the podcast, would I want to be the host, or should I bring on a really a voice talent and shift the host to get the customer, get the clientele, the mm-hmm. listeners used to having the host have guest host on, shift the host around occasionally, but the content mm-hmm. and the the quality of the guest is always there. The style stays the same. We find people that are trained voice actors if that if we have to they can step into a persona and carry on the interview style. But I don't know how to play that out, so I don't know where I'm going with this. I just noticed right before our show, somebody posted it on one of their podcasts I listened to, and I was like, I got to take a look at that. So it's still a tab open on my window. There's a lot of things that happen inside of these content-based businesses where if you can't step inside of that persona, and I'm a marketing guy. That's what my master's degree is in. My MBA is in marketing. But uh, if you can't step inside of that persona, you change the voice of the writer, the content, there's going to be some resistance to change. You'll attract new customers too, I'm sure, because with every voice that's out there, there are people, there are almost 8 billion people on this planet, 7.9 something billion. Surely not everybody's going to hate it, but I think there could be a big decline on any of these shifts. Unlike if you bought like an e-commerce product or something where nobody sees the people behind the curtain, you only get to see the wizard. <laughs> nobody yeah. sees the guy pulling the lever, so the wizard stays the same so long as the wizard continues to deliver quality products. There's usually no decline. Yeah, I'm still learning this space. I just kind of made the conscious decision to go to the content and stuff this year. When I really decided I embraced this mobile lifestyle and mm-hmm. wanting to remote, remote work and be able to live anywhere I want to live. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in that. Before we get off here, two mm-hmm. things. How do people reach out to you and work with you guys? Is it the website or do you want them to reach out to you to LinkedIn or give us a way to contact you?
1: Yeah, for sure. So rapiddiligence.com, we offer free intro consultation calls. So if you're just interested, you think you might be interested at some point, just reach out. You can book a call from the website. And so someone from our team will take care of you. I'm on Twitter as well at rapiddiligence. If you want to talk to me directly, it's just Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D at rapiddiligence.com.
0: Okay, cool. And then I always like to do this in full disclosure. It's usually because it's what we use to pull our YouTube shorts and our, uh, our new TikTok stuff probably the first time I've said it on the show, but if somebody can remember only one or two things for the entire show today, what would your key takeaways be?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I'll say after having looked at so many businesses over the years, I always say a minute spent in due diligence is an hour of headache saved after the business is acquired. So spend your time, whether that's with a third-party company like Rapid Diligence or whether that's due diligence you're doing yourself in-house, regardless, take time to understand and Do the proper due diligence because that's going to save you so much headache down the road. And the other thing I'll say is that like the numbers are important and all of the books, everything that's important. That's something you need to look at. But take a step back and look, understand what you're buying as a business. If something feels off, dig into it during that diligence period, that LOI period you get, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days or longer. You have every right as a potential buyer to ask for any data you want and need to make a comfortable buying decision. So take advantage of that because once that period is over, you don't get to go back and say, oh, I missed this or I wish I had asked. That's too bad, right? So take that time, look into things and make sure that the business you're buying makes sense because you as the buyer have the right to do that and you should take advantage of it.
0: Awesome. I appreciate your time today. Looking forward to maybe working with you in the future here as I find these fine deals I'm interested in. So uh, again, thank you.
1: And we'll call that a show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918 918- 641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created 5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between 5 million and 30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy.